So hi, uh, my name is Walt Hickey. Uh, I run a newsletter called Numlock. It's a daily morning newsletter of numbers inside the news. Uh, just to kind of like where this all came from was I was working at 538. I worked there for about five years. And I started a newsletter there called Significant Digits. And I really enjoyed doing it. It was what I did because as a guy with a mathy background, I realized that my biggest liability as a person in journalism was I needed to get the writing better and doing something every day was a really effective way of exercising. Uh, and so I ended up really enjoying it. And then it hit a point where uh, Scuttlebutt was that 538 was going to be sold. And as all of us who work in journalism know, it's time to start polishing the LinkedIn. And so what I ended up doing was I kind of looked at what SigDig was and I was like, there's more value in here than we're currently unlocking. There's more opportunity in a daily recurring newsletter. The open rate is great. People enjoy receiving this. And in building the case for why they should keep me, I actually kind of built the case for why I should leave and start my own damn newsletter. And I did that, and it's been great. And I highly recommend doing that if you ever have a chance to leave 538 to start your own newsletter. Um, <laughs> so that's the saga. But I'm not here to talk entirely about Numlock today. I'm here to talk about uh, just kind of why this is a really good medium and why you should treat it like a medium then have an opportunity to have some fun on. So again, the main newsletter is Numlock. This is kind of the bread and butter. Uh, this is what I've been doing uh, for going on two years now. If you look at what the form is, I've been doing it for a little bit longer, counting some of the 538 work. And so as a result, uh, I have a product that I think is good. And I have a product that my audience thinks is good. I have uh, people get it every day. Uh, it's kind of a fun rundown of numbers buried in the news. It's talked in a conversational fashion. Uh, when I think of like, oh, we're Uber for pizza. Like, uh, what my thing is, it's like it's GMA for nerdier folks. A and so as a result, you kind of have a good in with people who enjoy reading your work. Uh, this being Substack, at a certain point, it came time to monetize. Uh, and so what I ended up doing there was I launched a Sunday edition. Uh, this is what you get for five bucks a month. And it's basically, I talk to either a writer who wrote a really cool story that I put in the main newsletter, or I talk to an author who's got a good book out. And this is a really fun way to get a value add. It's a lot of times, like, if you think about traditional media ecosystems, and we're going to talk a bunch about those because they make some valid points. Uh, if you look at late night shows, there's a reason that they have, you know, written jokes in the beginning and then an interview at the end, it's because interviews are really easy to book and also people tend to like them a lot. And so it's a nice way to have something that is, you know, a little bit less work than the newsletter proper, but really gets people a good insight kind of behind the stories that we, we find so very interesting. Um, but what I'm also here to kind of go into is that I've started a couple other spin-offy newsletters, uh, one of which is the Numlock Awards Supplement. So I am a, a culture writer. I write about like, when I was at you know, 538, and then still to this day, I write about movies, culture, and all that kind of stuff. And I love predicting the Oscars, using math to do that kind of stuff. It's a good time. Uh, and so I started about two years ago. I was like, I want to keep doing this. This is a good exercise. I think that we learn a lot about ourselves and how we can predict things and this institution that is very obscure. It's a fun little puzzle kind of thing. And so I started a kind of a pop-up award season newsletter. It runs like from, you know, November-ish, whenever I feel like starting it, till Oscar night and then the week after that. And it's just a nice opportunity to hit an, like, to talk about a thing that I'm really passionate about, but not have to kind of throw it at my traditional, you know, people who want to watch GMA in the morning and then never talk to me again. Um, and that also kind of spawned another idea, which is like, 
again, I, I was I, I love the talk, especially about engaging with audiences and, and the discussion threads. I think that that's such a cool feature that you guys have built. And I wanted a way to kind of tap into that without, you know, f compelling people who just enjoyed the passive nature of newsletters to participate. And so I thought, like, again, having interviewed a lot of authors and seeing the response that that gets, this is an audience that enjoys, you know, reading things, learning new things, cool ideas, cool books, and stuff like that. So I thought that the way to kind of expand in that was uh, through a book club. This is a kind of a democracy, and it's also kind of an experiment. And I'm very forward with both of these things in the early uh, pitch to readers for that. The idea was like, we're going to vote on books. Uh, benevolent dictator, there you go. Uh, and we're going to vote on these books. Whatever book you pick, we're going to read. And then it's basically just going to be kind of a managed reading thing. And we've gone through three so far. We're in the middle of our fourth, and it's really fun. You know, you get a chance to cover things that you wouldn't normally cover. You get a chance to engage with readers in a way that you might not normally be able to or willing to based on how you normally interact with your newsletter. And it's a fun little pop-up thing. So um, I'm going to talk about why people should make more weird experimental newsletters, throw shit at the wall, see what sticks, and why it's fun. So the business case is, again, I want to go back to like how television works because uh, they figured audiences out a little while ago. So number one, expensive content that you do not own that makes people come to your network. You, you buy a bunch of that. And then during that programming, you advertise originals that are owned by you that people love once they try it and later come back to. So during the expensive stuff that you're overpaying for, you plug the stuff that people love, and once they check it out, they're going to go for it. Then you market during that the cheap content that you make that has huge margins. And that's where you actually make your money. Uh, you lose money on this a lot of the time. You keep people engaged with you and your network here. And they, I'll just go to the next slide because it gets a lot easier once you see examples. So um, the NFL, live sports, the Olympics, the Oscars, these things cost billions of dollars. And you have to wonder, they're basically breaking even on a lot of this stuff. Thursday Night Football has been losing money for years. The Olympics, they don't make that all back on ad revenue. And why do they buy that then? The answer is, is that they're plugging their bullshit primetime shows during the middle of uh, NFL games and during the Olympics and during that kind of stuff. So this is a huge thing for networks. Basically, they outlay the money for it, and then they plug their primetime shows. And then where do they make their money? The much cheaper stuff. Morning shows. Cheapest stuff on television, you need to pay a couple talent to show up every morning, and then you talk about whatever's good that day. Game shows, cheap as all hell. Reality shows, super cheap. And so the idea is that you make your money off of the cheaper content that you advertise on uh, or, you know, get, get people to subscribe to. Um, you keep them coming to your network, and you remind them of that during primetime, and then you get people in the funnel to begin with with this expensive bullshit. Uh, if you think about any television network and you think long and hard enough, you realize this is the entire ballgame. <laughs> like, ESPN pays way too much money for Monday Night Football. Why? So that you check out 30 for 30 and stuff, and then eventually you watch SportsCenter. That's how this all works. So, uh, basically, the Grand Unified Theory is you have something that draws randos in, and then you show them something why they might want to stick around, and then you actually make money on something. And so a lot of times, these are the same things. If you, like, there's a lot of, uh, like, HBO is kind of all these things at the same time, 
All right, it's more of a circle, right? You, you're drawn in because of a content that you want to see. You stay because you want to keep watching that content. You pay for that content. Totally viable business model, but I just wanted to break it down into these three steps because this is a viable way that you can start thinking about your newsletters. The idea is like, when I was thinking about Numlock, I knew I had that reliable thing that kept people coming back. I knew that I had that, but I lacked the other ends of this, you know, ecosystem, we'll call it that. I was gonna say human centipede, but let's not go there. Anyway, um, very easily figured out, one of the first things was, you know, the money thing. The idea is that like, interviews are easier to do. They are the thing that gets money, and if you actually think about the paid subscriber email, it's kind of a separate email that's within an email, it's all fun. Um, and then, so the question is, what, what lives over here, you know? And my answer to that is like, you know, people are who are interested in the Oscars, people who are interested in book clubs. These are organic things, big ideas that people like that might bring them to a newsletter that otherwise, um, you know, they might not come to check out Numlock. The idea is that I if you are kind of a, if you're having trouble telling people uh, exactly what you do besides like, oh, don't worry, you're gonna like it when you check it out. This is a, you know, an interesting metric. So that business case being said, here are the actual reasons that you should make this fun stuff. Um, who is having fun in media anymore? I think about this question constantly, because I'm having fun in media, but many other people are not. And so I made this list of all the people that I could think of that are currently having fun in media. Uh, top TV talent, uh, private equity capitalists extracting enormous quantities of wealth through a style of business operation not entirely unlike the episode where Tony Soprano busted out that camping store, Walt Disney. Uh, people who make a living directly from their audience, people who get residuals from NBC television shows that aired in the 90s and early 2000s, and Jake Paul. Uh, I can't be any of these except that one, and this is really fun. So to give you an example of other people have tried this before, uh, I wanted to highlight an example of the McElroy brothers, which is a uh, family of brothers who have uh, podcasts. And the podcast that they started out on was a podcast called my brother, my brother, and me. And then they tried to do Dungeons and Dragons one episode, and it went well, so they spun that off into a podcast called The Adventure Zone, which ended up becoming a lot more popular than the original podcast. And eventually, they started adding some other weird spin-off podcasts, and they started having a really good time doing that. And then some of these eventually turned into other promotions, and they can cross-promote through all of these. So the idea is, if you like The, uh, if, if you like, uh, the Bachelor, you know, you can listen to Rose Buddies, or you could, and then they moved it to Wonderful. If you like um, medical history, you can check out Sawbones, which promotes everything else in here. Uh, if you like news, then you can check trends like these, and all of this is kind of internally plugging each other. And so I can be a person who likes the first thing, and then eventually wind my way to the things that I like. If you have a weak stomach, you maybe not, don't really want to listen to Sawbones, but you might really, really be down for the Adventure Zone. And this also turns into other opportunities, like a book, or a graphic novel, or the fact that they had a podcast called The McElroy Brothers Will Be in Trolls 2, and eventually it happened. They're in Trolls 2. So basically, my whole point here is spinoffs are great. Um, they really suck out a lot of the things that are annoying about starting a newsletter. Uh, namely, the people who like you are already, you know the people who like you the most already. They're the ones who's currently subscribed to your newsletter. So you can plug to the people most likely to subscribe to your other newsletter. Um, basically, the, the golden rule that I've kind of found is that every single new subscriber is slightly easier to get than the previous subscriber because, you know, network scale and, you know, it, it's very difficult to go from zero to one. Uh, going from 10 to 11 is easier than that. Going 99 to 100 is easier than that and so on and so forth. Um, and you never really need to relay the zero subscriber email that really it takes guts to send. Um, so basically there's a low manageable commitment as long as you come into it like that. 
you can come out and say, I don't know if this is going to last forever. This is just a fun little thing I'm going to do on the side. But it also has an opportunity to bolster the way that you interact with your audience. You might get that hit. You might make the sidebar newsletter that ends up being bigger than your initial one. And so there's nobody really knows what's good <laughs> anymore. Um, and so experimenting a lot is a good way to try that. And also collabos are great. Like the uh, Oscars award one, I do that with Michael DeMatico, who I am dating, but at the same time is knows much more about the Oscars than I do, despite the fact that for a while I was getting paid to write it. <laughs> now, long story short, there's another like little sidebar of innovation that I wanted to hit because <laughs> the title of this presentation, by the way, is uh, what you can do at Substack uh, and I do not know the answer to that question, so I'm just kind of throwing stuff at the wall and see what happens. Uh, so the internet spent a lot of time figuring out how to really optimize ads in a, you know, voracious fashion. Like, that was the thing. They optimized, like, let's get better ads, let's make better ads tracking. We know a lot of ways to make money of, of advertising to people. Um, and so we do now know that, yeah, subscriptions are great. Like, you've... you've You've listened to those, right? And so the idea is that we know that this is good, but there's also, we're pretty zoned in on what type of subscription. I actually emailed Hamish late last night um, asking, hey, quick question, what is the average frequency with which a paid newsletter sends a paid newsletter? And he was like, don't know, we never checked. I did check, though. Uh, I pulled the top 25 uh, Substack newsletters and found that 14 of the 25 were sending about even amounts, you know, one paid for one free, one paid for one free. Uh, another, you know, four, the, the, it was kind of split in the other way. Some were more like me, which is, you know, you get five free, one paid. And then some were the opposite direction, where you get five paid and then one free per week. And so you can kind of see that we know what tends to do well in this regard. But I just want to kind of point out a few business models that I think people should try. Uh, and I would try these, but I just do not have time. <laughs> um, and so there's different ways that you can use subscriptions that are not simply half my shit is behind a paywall and the other half of it is out for freebie. And depending on where you are, this could turn into some really viable business models. For instance, you can use basically almost a demand-based pricing. Like there's an election going on. Don't know if you heard about that one. It's big. And as a result, in October, lots of people are going to be interested in that stuff. And so maybe you have something that's like, we're an elections newsletter in October, only the paid subscribers get the really timely material. Like if I were our website, like 537 or 539, this could be a viable way to make money. <laughs> but at the same time, you could have a paid only edition that arrives quarterly or yearly. You just have to figure out what you need to promise and then deliver on that. It doesn't need to be once a week. It doesn't need to be twice a week. It doesn't need to be once a month. As long as you just kind of figure out what your social contract with your readers is, you can do whatever you want. And so it can come in the form of I cover an industry and once a year, you're going to get a big report from me, and that's what the money's for. And if you're just honest about what the money's for, everybody's having a good time. You can um, promise to do 20 paid-only editions per year and only send them when there's actually news on your beat. Uh, if, you know, to take the Oscars, I'm not going to monetize the Oscars one, but the idea is, like, maybe I have an awards all-year one, and then I only send the paid editions when the news is hot, which is going to be in January and February. Uh, there's all sorts of different ways that you can kind of use ancillary newsletters to both experiment with content, experiment with delivery formats, and all that kind of stuff. So thanks so much for your time. This has been a lot of fun. I'm so glad that this event was put together. Uh, thank you for coming out. Thanks.